Well, would you open your Bibles to John chapter 6, uh, verses, we're going to study verses 22 through 71. The title of the sermon is The Bread of Life, and you're going to see why, because that is one of the most frequently mentioned phrases in this text. And, you know, so we've been learning that for all who believe in Jesus Christ and their, as their Lord and Savior, you guys, Jesus will always be more than enough for you. He'll always be more than enough for you. That's been the theme of John. It's been the theme from the very beginning, chapter one. He came to us full of grace and truth. He's always going to be more than enough. He, he turned the water into wine, and there was, there was far more wine than they needed. And, and we remember that as we studied that, it was really pointing to the forgiveness that he would give for all the sins we've committed. He has more than enough forgiveness for our sins. We learned in John chapter 3 that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. There's more than enough love, not just for how big the world is, but for how bad the world is. And he gave that kind of love, more than enough love, to save us from our sins. We learned that the woman at the well, that, that, that he would give her not just a sip of water, but he would give her living water, and it would become a, in her a fountain of living water, overflowing to reach other people. And we learned last week that he was more than enough and he took five loaves, five really, remember we said, they're really about the size of English muffins, five little biscuits with a couple of maybe sardine-like stuff that was kind of ground up into a fish relish. Doesn't that just make you want to go to lunch now? Um, and he fed miraculously 20,000 people. And this morning, there's going to be an explanation behind all of that because it wasn't just about feeding their bellies, was it? It was about what he offers to your soul. And that's what we want to pay attention to this morning. Um, so would you join me as we read John chapter 6, beginning in verse 22. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him the Father has set his seal. And then they said to him, well, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. And so they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? Let me put a pause button there. Don't you kind of want to just go like this sometimes? But we should be doing that about ourselves, right, too? Oh, okay, back to, back to the text. What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, oh, sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. You've seen me, and you don't believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him. 
because he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he say now I've come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will be taught by God. Everyone who is heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I'll raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my food, my blood, abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. In other words, he's talking to religious folk. Verse 16. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, well, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it's granted by my Father. Well, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Oh, Lord. Well, Lord, there's a lot here. We're so thankful that you're a bigger God than the number of verses we, we read just now. And we need every bit of how big and great you are. Lord, you say in your word that It's your word and spirit that gives life, and the flesh profits nothing. So God, would you do that in the midst of our gathering today? That by your word and through your spirit, that you would give life. To some for the first time, entrusting Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And for the believer, a renewal, a refreshing, a deepening of the saving joy you've already given them in Jesus. Please be glorified in this. In Jesus' name. Amen. Boy, have you ever noticed what people will do for free food? I don't know if they still do this, but on July 11th, so start getting some themes here, 7, July 7, 11, some of you with the younger kids might know what I'm doing. On 7-11, 
7-Eleven stores used to give away free Slurpees. Anybody, does anybody, did anybody ever get a free Slurpee? Yeah, I'm with you. Well, I'm not really with you. I just thought that was crazy. <laughs> so, hang on, hang on. So they'd give away free Slurpees. The Slurpee was only 7.11 ounces. I don't know if people realize that. Um, and people would drive for miles and use up how, who knows how much high-priced gasoline, right? So I'm going to use $7 of gas to get a 7.11-ounce free Slurpee. Oh, but how, and, and this, what is a Slurpee? Crushed ice sugar food coloring. Wow. Let's work really hard for that. But it's amazing what people do for free food. Did you know that years ago, Domino's offered free pizzas for life for anyone who would get a Domino's tattoo on their arm? or that It would have to be visible. So you, you want, you, they wanted you to be a walking billboard, right? And so if you would do that, free pepperoni for you. So many people did it. They totally were freaked out. They didn't expect that, that they had to cancel the offer really quickly. All these tattooed Domino's people walking around. <laughs> Can you be, imagine being the Domino's dude that got the tattoo but not the pizza? I mean, what? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Have you ever seen the lines at a new Chick-fil-A? Start at 3 or 4 in the morning, if not earlier. Because if you'll be one of the first 50 people... <laughs> You'll get free Chick-fil-A for a year. Wow. It's amazing how hard we'll work for free food. And never be satisfied by it. We work so hard. We give so much time. We invest so much money into things that will never last, never satisfy the way we'd hope. And even if they did provide some lasting satisfaction, they can never change the real problem. They can never change our hard, sinful hearts. They can never change us. They can never save us from the eternal judgment that awaits for every person when they die. Since the fall, mankind has had it backwards. Fallen man thinks that satisfaction will be salvation. Satisfaction will be salvation. The Bible teaches salvation is satisfaction. So you, please get them in the right order, right? So this is why John 6 is so important to us. Main point this morning is in your notes. God gives us grace to believe in Jesus because he alone brings eternal salvation and satisfaction for our souls. So the first section is believing in Jesus is the way we feed upon the bread of life. Believing is eating. You'll see that quote from Augustine later in the text. This is going to be John 6, 22 through 34 and 49 through 58. So you saw it's a day after the bread miracle. And people are still just working fast and furious for more free food. And you know why? Because their bellies were empty. So that's why. You got to, we got to stop and take, think about the text. Why are they working so hard to follow Jesus? And so then they, when they get to him, they give them this question. Rabbi, when did you get here? Have you ever been asked a question on one topic, but you knew that's not really what the person wanted to talk about? Parenting is like that all the time, isn't it? Hey, Dad, I've been pretty good lately. <laughs> okay. You know there's more to that. Or, Dad, remember, remember last week when I helped you rake the leaves? Right? That's my dad. I always used to do his eyebrows. like that. Um, you know, there's this new computer game, right? I mean, so it's always, it's like there's something behind the question. And Jesus knew their hearts. He knew there was something behind the question. And he's going to confront the real issue. Guys, I, there, there should some, be some parts of this that kind of shake our hearts a little bit. If, if you don't have a Jesus that rattles your cage semi-periodically, semi-regularly, I'm not sure that you're really following the Jesus of the Bible. He cuts right to the chase, doesn't he? Some people would say, well, this isn't very polite. <laughs> and he just doesn't even answer their question. He says, the only reason you're coming after me is for food. Your bellies are empty. 
So he says, truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Why are you following Jesus today? Because, because you've got a little bit empty from the things of the world and you're just going to look to Jesus to get you the world? Don't go to Jesus to get the world. Go to Jesus to get Jesus. They wanted miracles, not the Messiah. They're interested in a Jesus. Uh, they were interested in Jesus, not as soul-saving, heart-satisfying treasure, but to be a servant boy to get them what they treasured in the world. They wanted more food, not more Jesus. You know, I think of our kids being with us, so I use these phrases. Hopefully you'll understand that. They wanted more gummy bears than they did godliness. They wanted free gorditas from God instead of the free grace from God that they needed. They don't care about Jesus dying for their sin. They just want seconds on spaghetti. I mean, that's, that's just essentially what's going on here. They don't want the giver. They want the gift. And we all know what that's like. They're working hard to get the satisfaction that they think is salvation. So please take this. Now, okay, what about me, Lord? Are there some areas in my life that I am just surrendering myself to in order to get a satisfaction, then I think that the satisfaction is going to save me. Verse 27, Jesus continues to kind of drill down deeper. Do not work for the food that perishes. In other words, why are you working so hard to get things that can never satisfy your heart? Chasing after things that perish can never provide permanent peace. Car insurance commercials. Ever watch car insurance commercials? <laughs> You know, it's not about anymore how great the insurance is. It's about how great the comedy is. I mean, car insurance commercials have great comedians for writers. I don't know if you've noticed that. So Geico, I, just, I don't know if you've seen this one. There's this couple, and they're just in their new home. And how do you like your new home? And the wife says, oh, we love our new home, but we've got ants. Yes, have you seen some of that? And they're not talking about creepy, crawly ants. They're talking about Aunt Matilda and Aunt Hilda and Aunt Sally and all these kind of ants. And they show one of the ants at the refrigerator. And, and she's pulling out a bottle. Expired. Expired. So listen, you younger people wouldn't even understand this. If you're getting older, my kids are doing this to us now. I'm 63. I think I still have a little bit of a brain left. But they're still, they come home and they check to see if what we have in the refrigerator is safe to eat, right? So they are, they are but get that. I want you to get that phrase. Expired. Expired. Why are you laboring for what perishes? Expired. Vacation, expired, nothing wrong with vacation unless you're looking for it to bring some lasting satisfaction to your heart. Sex in marriage, even sex in marriage is expired. Sex outside of marriage is even worse. Money, possessions, expired. Career, expired. Health, expired. What are you working so hard for? What are you really surrendering yourself in hopes of having a life where you, where you don't? Isn't this really what's happening? We're trying to do something to get enough of something so we don't have to worry anymore. We don't have to have faith about anything. We have all that we need, enough money or friends or health physical fitness, possessions, security, success, or just even fun. How hard we work to have fun. Wow. All thinking that's going to be lasting. Some work hard to get a dream husband or a dream, uh, a dream husband or a dream wife or to have a dream marriage. But can I tell you, if you're married, even a great spouse makes a poor savior. Quit doing that to your spouse. It's not that they're failing you so badly. It's your expectation. You're expecting them to give you what only God can give you? Great spouse makes a horrible savior. A great marriage. Don't we want to have good marriages? 
But if you make it an ultimate thing, a great marriage makes a poor Messiah. How about a great career? A great career makes a poor Christ. Most of those things aren't bad. God loves to provide these things, but they can't be ultimate things. I can't allow myself to want these things more than I want to know and love and serve God. So Jesus says, why are you working feverishly, all-consumingly for food that should perish? That, that shouldn't be a new thought for them. Stephen read that passage, Isaiah 55, 1 through 3. And I'm, I'm so thankful, Stephen, that you included that. So we won't take the time to read it here because Stephen's already read that. But they, they, they were already being told this in the Old Testament. You need to find something better to work for, something better to surrender yourself to. So Jesus goes further in verse 27. So work for the food that endures to eternal life. He's not talking about works righteousness. He's talking about surrendering yourself to something, to some, it's actually not something, is it? He's saying, surrender yourself to someone. I mean, there's something in our hearts. Man, I, my dating life was a joke. I'm so thankful that God blinded Jan to, 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 to marry me. <laughs> I don't, how she, I, how I got amazing wife, I just don't know. I would date a girl. There weren't, a thousand, there weren't that many either. <laughs> I didn't have a lot of dating. But I'd date a girl, she'd break up with me. And then that girl would marry the very next guy she'd date. Date another girl, she'd break up with me. That girl would marry the very next guy she'd date. That happened like three times in a row. And I just thought, there's my ministry. I'm preparing single women to be good, good spouses for another man. That's my ministry. Isn't there something, though, that's in us, something in us that I want to give myself to someone? I want to give myself fully and completely. There's just something that it makes sense that, that there's, there's something out there that, that, that we should give ourselves completely to. That's what he's talking about when he says, don't, listen, don't work for the food that perishes. Give yourself to the food that endures to eternal life. And guess who gives that to you? The Son of Man. He's going to give it to you. For on him, the God the Father has set his seal. Okay, so now picture, now you're back to them. So this is this conversation going back and forth. So now you can picture them saying, okay, it sounds like <laughs> you, you might be saying you're the Messiah. I'm kind of thinking, I'm kind of thinking that maybe you're saying you're him. You're the Messiah, the Son of Man, who gives, and the Father sets his seal on it. Sounds like you're saying that you're that. So, he's, so then they say, so what kind of work do we need to do? They're totally missing it. What kind of work do we need to do so we can be permanently satisfied in our souls and stomachs? Verse 29, this is the work of God. Believe in him. <laughs> Believe in him whom God has sent. So let's be careful of that word believe. This, this isn't believing in Jesus like you believe in George Washington. It's not that kind of belief at all. This is a seeing, a being satisfied, and surrender. If you want to kind of put it in some three S's. Or you could say this, it's about your mind, it's about your heart, and it's about your will. Saving faith, it starts, listen, that's why we teach the Bible verse by verse. Because it's the word that does the work of God to illuminate your heart, to show you the depth of your sin and the glory of his grace. It's his word. It's his word that shows you that. And so God confronts us with our thoughts, with our thinking, what we believe. He confronts us and he, he does this great work of grace to where we recognize I'm in trouble here. <laughs> Steve, it was so awesome, man. I just feel like we are just such partners in this message today. Because did you hear what Stephen said? It's, it's like, we, you need to come to church to learn how bad off we are. <laughs> Just that statement by itself is like, well, I want to keep coming to that church, you know. Until you see that, no, when you see how bad off you are, you see how deep his love is. And how great his grace is. And what the cross actually means for your salvation. And so then it touches your heart. There's, this, there's an affection. Part of the affection is, I hate the fact that I sinned against you. 
Have you ever felt, listen, in your, in your salvation experience, this is what God does. He gets to your mind. He, he feeds you with his word. That illumination lets you see how dangerous, what dangerous ground you're on if you were to die in your sin and how great his grace is if you'll trust in him. But it touches your heart because something has happened on the inside of you to where I am sorry how could I do this to someone who loves me perfectly? I hate it. I hate, I, you guys, I love Jan so much. She loves me so faithfully. I hate it when I, when I yell at her or I, I'm impatient with her. At the moment, I don't. That's how sick I am. Because I just, at that moment, I just want to win. You ever been there? So I'll use any tactic I can to win and the Holy Spirit's working on my heart. I hate the way I treat someone who loves me. And then there's this other affection. I have this affection for Jesus that I never had before. He loves me. And I have a love for him now that leads to what? Surrender. That's saving faith. That's what saving faith looks like. So when Jesus is talking about believing, that's what he's talking about. It's believing that Jesus is not only all you need to be forgiven, that's your biggest need. It starts there. Do you believe your biggest need is forgiveness and becoming right with God through Christ's righteousness being counted to your account? But it's also believing that Jesus is all you need for your soul to be satisfied. All the love you need is in Jesus. All the joy you need is in Jesus. All the peace and contentment and wisdom and direction and purpose, it's all in Jesus, amen? Okay, well then they say in verse 30, okay. <laughs> so what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers uh, ate manna in the wilderness, kind of raising the bar. They think they're raising the bar here. Uh, in the man in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. So remember, he's just fed 20,000 people. And they're asking, what sign do you do? That's what people with empty bellies, that's how we live. We are blind to what our true need is. We are slaves to getting our feelings and our emotions and our flesh satisfied. That's how people talk who are dead in sin. He just fed 20,000. And that's what sin did to the heart at the fall. Sin, Satan's temptation was if you'll eat of this fruit, you can have the blessings of God and you don't need God to get them. That's, that, and that, that, disease infected all of us. Something in us that says somehow I can get the blessings of God without God or I can be in charge of everything and kind of create my own Christianity and I can even include Jesus to get the blessings from Jesus without worshiping him, without adoring him, without obeying him. Moses gave manna for six days a week, and on the sixth day, he gave twice as much so, so that they that would have extra to have on the Sabbath. And he did that for 40 years. Okay, that's pretty impressive. They believed that the prophet who would come after him is supposed to do even better. So what sign will you do, Jesus? And if you give us the kind of sign that shows you that you're going to give us better food than manna, 24-7, unstopped blessings, maybe then we'll believe in you. And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it wasn't Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but it's my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who came down from heaven and gives life to the world. And then they say, sir, give us this bread always, still thinking of their bellies, not their souls. And, and Jesus said, well, okay, first of all, again, a little correction here, Moses didn't give you that bread. God gave that bread. And even that bread was not to, meant to just fill their stomachs to be satisfied forever. It, it, what, did, what happened to the manna if you saved it an extra day? Maggots. Let's get, let's get real. Right? It's rotted. Maggots. It's gross. It rotted. 
Why? Because manna was actually a foreshadowing of what Jesus was to come and give something better than this. This only lasted for a day. The Son of God would come to give you life that would be for eternity. That's what he's talking about. They're still not getting it. And he, 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 he pulls out the I am. Do you notice how I even tried to read it, accentuating that? John, the Holy Spirit gave John seven times that Jesus says, I am. And that's, that, that was the Old Testament. That was the covenant phrase that described him declaring, I, I am God. That's what he's essentially saying. He's God the Son, but he's declaring himself to be equal to God. I am the bread of life. I am the ever-existing God. I am the all-sufficient God. I am the all-powerful God, the all-wise God. I am the all-loving God, the all-righteous God. And I'm the God who will give eternal life for sinners if they'll trust and follow me. I will be the righteous, sufficient, holy, loving, powerful, eternal God. That's worth giving your life to. That's worth surrendering your life for. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and believes in me shall never thirst. Okay, so does that mean we won't be sad anymore? Still commits, maybe, does that mean we won't commit sins anymore? Does that mean I won't get my heart broken anymore? I sure would love that. How about a bad diagnosis from the doctor or trouble in marriage or trouble in parenting or getting laid off a job? Is that what you're talking about, Jesus? It's not what he's talking about. He's talking about if those things happen, you're still rich. If those things happen, and they do in a fallen world, you still have the treasure of Jesus. You know, you've heard that phrase, when Jesus is all you have, that's when you really discover he's all I need. He's all I need. That's what he's saying here. Verse 49, your fathers ate the bread in the wilderness and they died. They didn't make it to the promised land. It didn't save them. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. Here he goes. He's taking it a step further. They grumble and they reject that. In verse 53, he goes even further. Truly, truly, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, will not perish. I will raise him up on the last day. My flesh is true food. My blood is true drink. Goes further, 56. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. And we'll talk about that in a second. It was interesting looking at just the different theologians and scholars and their views on this and I, I would tend to shake out on the, the thought that Jesus wasn't instituting communion at this point um, it sounds to us like it is because we're living on this side of the cross but put yourself in, in that time they have no idea of communion they have no idea of a supper that would represent his flesh and blood they have no idea about that and, and the danger of him instituting communion at this point would be so begin thinking of some, some, some religions in the world that actually do this, that they, they actually make taking communion to be, have saving value. So he didn't do that. He wasn't doing that then. Taking communion has no saving value, but it points you to the one who saves, right? He's using the metaphor of his flesh and blood to show them that he came to die for their sins. That's, that's why flesh and blood. It's not, it's not to get all grossed out about literally eating that. It's just telling you he's going to die a horrible death so that you can feed yourself on the truth that he came to forgive you, that he came to give you a new life. That's what he wants us to feed on. And that's why Augustine said, it's in your notes, believe and you've eaten so how many times did you see believe in the text? Believe, believe, believe. It's in believing that we eat 
That's where, our, that's where our, we're believing God at his word. We're believing Christ and his work on the cross and who he is as the son of God and his incarnation and his substitutionary death and his victorious resurrection. He uses eating and drinking, though, to not merely talk about forgiveness. He uses eating and drinking to symbolize a union that we have with him. How many of you still kind of have this idea when you pray that it's like you're over in this corner of the world and God's over in that corner of the universe and, and somehow you're just connected by some salvation contract? I'm just, there's just a contract. You just have an obligation to save me, Lord. I'm going to call you when I have troubles and problems. Uh, but boy, you sure feel far away a lot of times. When we take and eat of communion, the, the bread and the juice, when they go past our lips, the two become one, don't they? And, it, it's such, and then there's the whole, this is where it, it just loses its, the beauty of this picture, but then it just becomes part of you, becomes part of your digestion. And you can't tell where the bread and the juice stop and where you start. They're so close. How many of you want to experience that that's how Jesus is closer to you than that? That's how close he is. There's a union. Salvation isn't just, can you give me the forgiveness contract so that I can, that I can have that to show when I die? Salvation is, I, have, I get a new heart and I actually get the presence of Christ through the person of the Holy Spirit to never leave me or forsake me. That's salvation. It's not just trying to be good enough to get in. It's that he died to pay the price for all the reasons I shouldn't get in. He joins his life to me so that for all the rest of eternity, where he gets to go, I get to go. When you stand before, the, I don't know what that's going to look like. But, you know, people have all these ideas of what, if you're going to stand before the pearly gates, you know, you're going to stand there. What are you going to say? Well, I, I signed a contract. I, I believe Jesus died for my sins. Yeah, but you don't really have much evidence of loving him or worshiping him. And, yeah, but I got the contract. Versus the person says, listen, I have no right to come in. But the man who died on the cross said I could come. I got that from somebody, and I can't remember where. Just so you, so that it is awesome, isn't it? I thought it was awesome when I heard it too. So, <laughs> so let's keep going, guys. And, and the other thing is, this isn't just a one-time belief. Like you believe this once, and you get your ticket. This is talking about an ongoing believing, an ongoing seeing, an ongoing being satisfied, an ongoing surrender. That's salvation. And he will give that to us as a gift of his grace. And they just keep grumbling and grumbling and grumbling. They want credit for the work. If they're going to work for anything, they want the credit for it. They don't want to believe they need his grace for all things. For them, it would just be enough if it's Jesus plus our good works or, or Jesus, but only if he gives us what we think is best for our lives. I'll follow you, Jesus, but only if you give me what I think is best for my lives. And then we wonder why people deconstruct right and left. With, a, with theology like that. Well, here's great news. God not only gives you the gift of his son, God also gives you the grace to believe in his son. I wonder if you notice that in the text. And that gift of grace to believe will last from beginning to end, from start to finish. Let's look to see. That's the second point. We need God's grace to believe from beginning to end. Uh, right here at the very beginning, verse 35, Jesus keeps emphasizing these promises is that, that if you believe in me, you'll have eternal life. I'm the bread of life. If you believe in me, you'll get eternal life. You won't hunger. You won't thirst again. And then in verse 47 and 48, he says again, believe in me, believe in me. So here we, when, when, the, when you start seeing scripture, this is one way to kind of start to, you know, parsing out what is, what is, what's the message that God's wanting me to come away from this in? He's bookending believe, believe, right? So verse 35 and verse 47, 48, believe, believe, believe. And then he goes in to say, I'm not only going to call you to believe, I'm going to give you the grace to believe. I'm not only going to give you the gift of my son, 
guess what, guess, this is what you read. I'm actually giving you as a gift to my son. Let's see what that's all about. But I say to you, you have seen me and you do not believe. Let's be sobered by that. These people literally are standing yards away from Jesus. He's just turned fish relish and biscuits into food that more than fills 20,000 people, 12 baskets left over. And they're not believing. So I want to ask you, how does anyone come to believe if even seeing doesn't produce it? It's called grace. It's called grace. Verse 36 says, but I've said to you, you see me, you do not believe. The great news is that God will give the gift of his grace to believe in his son from beginning to end. So verse 37, I want you to, this is really important. Keep your nose in the book. This is, you just need to see this. Jesus saying this. This isn't a church historian over time saying this. This is Jesus saying this. This is red letters. Okay. Not that that's any more, any less, more the word of God, but just to get the point across. All that the father gives to Jesus will come to him. Paul says something like this in Ephesians 1 when he says that, that all who would be saved were actually chosen by God before the foundations of the world. God foreknew you before you were born. He knew everything about you. You weren't created yet just because he is the I am. He's timeless. He knew the worst about you. Everything you're trying to hide, when we walk in here together, all of us kind of are hiding stuff. We want to try to have a little bit of religious niceness and, you know, but there's things that we just don't want really anybody else to know. God sees it all. And he loves you anyway. What did God know about you? See, everybody wants to say, oh, God knew I would choose him. Stephen read John, uh, Romans 3. No one seeks God. No one pursues God. There's none righteous. No, not one. That's what God knows about you, what you would do in the future if your life was just left up to you. That's what would happen. But God sets his love upon you before the foundations of the world to save you in Jesus Christ. God loves us so much to not only give his son to you, but to give you to his son. And don't go thinking that we're some, that we're all that. <laughs> hey, I just heard this morning, I'm a gift to Jesus. <laughs> oh man. Actually, what's happening here, you guys, is God is giving the, the redeemed as the reward of Christ's suffering to him. There, here is the reward, my son of your suffering. Here's the reward of your suffering. And the text says nothing will stop it. The worst sin won't stop this. So if you're thinking out there, well, I, I can believe this probably for fairly good people, but I'm the worst in this room. The worst sin won't stop this. The worst that Satan has to offer can't stop this. Being raised in a home without the example of Christian parents won't stop this. We have a lot of excuses, don't we, for why we're the way we are. None of those things can stop this. No one who hears the voice of Christ the shepherd calling him or him or her to be saved will be left out of this. No one who hears his voice will be left out of this. All who were given by the Father to the Son will come. That's good news. There was a choice before your choice. That's what he's saying. And God's choice of you gives you great assurance that your choice of him is real. That's, that's the joy. That's the assurance of faith that God gives us. The faith I'm placing in him is because he first loved me. That's what's happening here. His choice was the primary choice, enabling my choice. That's why I can be so assured. Listen, let's get really real here. How many decisions have you made that you regret like crazy? 
I think we'd be frightened if there was a computer adding up all of the, all of the decisions that, de- that we thought were determinative for our lives and how many of them we'd take back in a second if we could. Do, do you really want your whole eternity to be based on your decisions, your choices? Or would it be better news to know that God gave Jesus the gift of you as the reward of his suffering so that you could receive the gift of him. Where is your assurance coming from? The second promise is whoever comes to Jesus will never be cast out. (laughs) Yeah, that makes a lot of sense if that first point is true. Jesus says, I'm doing the will of my father who is in heaven and his will is that I should lose nothing of all that he's given me. And this is the Father's will. Look on the Son, believe in Him, and He shall be raised up on the last day. Beginning to end. How do you quote that God will finish? How do you, how, how do you interpret God will finish the work He began in you until you see Jesus face to face? Did that work begin with Uh, good old religious me, smart me, I chose Jesus. Is that when his work began? Not for what this text says. This text says his work on loving you began before the foundations of the world. And it will not end. Even seeing him face to face is just glory now, but it's going to continue from then, isn't it? Jesus is our great shepherd. He will not... So, the, so much of these doctrines are to help suffering Christians. When was the last time like, you, you feel like, I'm losing my grip here? I don't know how long I can keep following Jesus. I'm facing things I never thought I'd face in my life as a Christian. I'm facing things I never thought I'd face in my life. I never thought I'd face the loss of a child. I never thought I'd face the loss of a parent when I was still a child. I never thought I would be so betrayed by another Christian. I never thought that I'd be a faithful spouse only to discover my my spouse is living in rampant adultery and abandoned me. Who do you hope is in charge of your faith then? How many of you just feel like I'm trying to white knuckle holding on to you, Jesus, but I'm losing my grip? And Jesus said to you, all that the Father gives me will never cast away. It's not that you're holding on to me, child. I'm holding on to you. That's the good news of this. Not our sickness, not our sorrows, not our failures, not our brokenheartedness. Not even our death will separate him from the love of God. We'll never be separated. And then the third promise is, verse 44, no one can come to Jesus unless the Father draws him. So what that doesn't mean, you you might have heard some people talk about irresistible grace and all this kind of stuff, and that God is just saying, you know, like, listen, I'm the most willful, you know, I'm the worst sinner I know in this room, okay? Because I can't know what all's in your life. I know. I'm the worst sinner I know. And I was a rebellious, proud, arrogant, egomaniacal guy. And so is my salvation God just pulling me up by the short hairs and like (laughs) dragging me in because it's bath time and I hate, you know, I mean, just some some kind of thing that, oh, he's taken me to heaven and I don't want to go. That's just totally not what it means for God to draw us. What it means for God to draw us is the scripture says it. He gives you a new heart. Do we believe those things? So back to Ezekiel. Here's the promise of the new covenant. I'm going to take the heart of stone out of you. I'm going to put a heart of flesh in you. I'm going to give you a birth from above, born again. I'm going to cause you to be born again. And I'm going to show you the horror of your sin and the beauty of my son. And it's the beauty that's going to draw you. Doesn't that happen to you? 
I mean, what do you do? You see the you, you see Mount Everest, you see the Grand Canyon, you see what you see Rio Doso. I mean, you can go closer than those things, you know, And you see beauty. Don't you want to go there? Don't you want to see it? Don't you want to look a little longer? That's what God does to the heart of His people. We see His beauty, and in seeing His beauty, we long to see more. That's what's happening here. That's what it means when he gives us a new heart. He draws us in that way. Do you think that Jan's dad put a shotgun to my head to marry that woman? He'd have, somebody would have to put a shotgun to my head to, for me not to. And even then I wouldn't. She'd get a dead husband right from the very beginning. But These are the dumbest illustrations. Oh my goodness. I love my wife and no one had to push me to fall in love with her or to stay in love with her. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. There will be no one who desires to repent of their sins and turn in faith to love and follow Jesus who will be left out of heaven. That's what this is saying. No one who wants Jesus for who Jesus is, who wants to go to heaven to be with Jesus for eternity, no, one, no one's going to get left out of heaven. That, no one who wants that will get left out of heaven. It's not that God's going to close the door and somebody's going to come on a little late. I, there, was a, there was a crash on the I-10. Can you let me in? No, there's nobody that's going to be like that. All who God draws will come. All who God has given the Son will come. That's what this is saying. So listen, I know some of y'all didn't grow up hearing these things, and I didn't either. You do not, these are called the doctrines of grace. I would just point you back to, this is the doctrine of Christ. You don't need to believe those specific things to be saved. The the text says, believe on Jesus and you'll be saved. That's what the text says. Believe on Jesus and you'll be saved. What this is doing is it's kind of taking you behind the scenes to see how, what a treasure your salvation is and that grace is greater than you ever dreamed it to be. Let's give you a little illustration here. That was my story. I moved here as a pastor who thought that, that my decision was the determining factor really in my life, including in my salvation. That I was just smart enough, wise enough, I, I hit bottom enough, whatever enough you want to talk about. And, and that finally I came to the conclusion, well, gee, I'm, Jesus looking pretty good now. And the Lord started showing me these texts everywhere. It's everywhere. If you'll keep your eyes open, this is everywhere. And I was watching an R.C. Sproul video on VHS. This is how far back. VHS, R.C. Sproul. And he was teaching Ephesians 2 that we are dead in sin and transgression. And then a little bit later, God made us alive in Christ Jesus. So Sproul says, how do you see your salvation? Do you see your salvation as the person who's, who's in, 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 at the, in the ocean, your boat is sunk, you're, you've, you're, you're exhausted, you can't swim anymore, but you see a boat and you put up your hand and you go, oh, thank God, that's important, that boat's going to be important in my salvation, but thank God I'm smart enough to know how to ask for help, you know, right? They throw the life preserver out to you, you put it on and they pull you up on the boat and you go, man... Thank you, high five, fist bump, you know, thank you. That was so important. Thanks for the role you played in my salvation. But I'm, good thing I, good thing I asked for help. Or do you believe the scriptures that you were dead in sin and transgression? You were already on the bottom of the ocean floor. You were, you were alive to sin, but you're dead to God. You have no interest in God. You have no desire to come to him. And he does a miracle of grace that opens your eyes to go, I'm in trouble. (laughs) I'm on the bottom of the ocean floor and I need to be saved. 
That's what the, the text goes on to say. He makes you alive together with him in Christ Jesus. You know what happened to me? I'll just, I'll just do this. Jan and the boys weren't there. I fall on the ground, weeping. Not because I got saved. I was already saved. None of those things saved me. But here's what happened about my salvation. I, my prayer was again and again, God, please forgive me. I am such an arrogant man to think that my choices in life are the determinative choices in life, particularly about my salvation. I didn't know. I thought that I wasn't as sinful as I was. I thought I still had the capacity to make a righteous choice. How could, a, how could somebody who's dead in sin make a righteous choice? God, please forgive me. I, I haven't understood how sinful I am but I also haven't understood how great you are and how great your grace is and how I don't deserve to enjoy all the blessings I've received in Christ. And I want to love you and know you better and follow you more devotedly the rest of my life. That's the impact that this had on my life. That's the impact that this had on my life. So the last point is this. Jesus is not just one option of many. He alone is salvation and satisfaction. So what we see here is now, picture this. I don't know if there was 20,000 here, but there was thousands who were following him and then they're not. They're abandoning ship right and left. So you get some graphic illustrations here of what happens if you come to Jesus, if you come to Jesus to get your bellies full and not your heart full. To get your, your stomach full and not your soul saved. This is what happens. It's a graphic illustration of what happens if God is not the author and perfecter of our faith. It's a graphic illustration of how we may want Jesus until his supreme authority bumps up against our self-sovereignty. Especially in Texas. I mean, please, that's one to meditate on. How am I responding to the authority of God's word in all of my life? And where am I making excuses that my self-sovereignty trumps his, his sovereignty over me, his authority over me? We see a graphic example, though, also of how great a treasure Jesus is. When all the world is abandoning him, he's still worth following. <laughs> he's still worth following, even if no one else follows Still, I will go, right? The passage teaches us that there may be a lot of people who are excited about Jesus, sort of Team Jesus, today's Super Bowl. Team Jesus, like you needed to know that. This is the best news you'll hear all day, okay? I hope your team wins, but this is the best news you'll hear all day. Only to discover they weren't followers of Jesus at all. That's what's happening here. Even somebody who was super close to him, was still putting on, just putting on. He wasn't a true follower of Jesus either. They highlighted Judas. And so many of the disciples heard it. This is a hard saying. They turn away from Jesus. They're not going to follow him anymore. And Jesus says to his disciples, are you going to leave too? And Peter says, you alone have the words of eternal life. You are the Holy One of God. Where else would we go? So let's think of the hard things that Jesus has said. He's come from heaven. God became man. He was greater than Moses. He came not to give free food, but the gift of salvation. Salvation would only happen if he suffered and died for their sins. That's how bad their sins were. And they needed to believe in this, in his innocent life, in his substitutionary death, as if they were feeding their souls on it, like they needed oxygen. And that their good works were not good enough to get them into heaven. And that they were offended by God's authority and grace trumps their self-sovereignty in all things. And many people heard all of that and they left Jesus. It's still happening today. A lot of people turn away from Jesus because, oh, I can't believe in a God who allows bad things to happen to good people as if there were any. Or I can't believe in his love if he lets me have so much pain or allows people to go to hell. 
or, or marriage is a lifetime covenant between one biological male and one biological female, or in the beginning God made biological male and biological female in his image. I never thought I'd have to put that word in front. Years ago, I never thought. Blessed are, men, blessed are you when men persecute you for his name's sake. Blessed, uh, bless those who curse you. Forgive those who hurt you. Hard sayings. Do you want to leave too? Do you want to leave too? Maybe a lot of reasons people leave. A lot of excuses they give. But ultimately, it comes down to, I don't want Jesus. I love sin, not him. That's, it's all about Jesus. I don't care what smoke screens you put up. It's, it's that he is Lord, you are not. You need to be made right with him. And if you die in the condition that, you in, that you're in, you're going to get the justice eternally that you've deserved and earned. There's a lot of reasons people don't come to Jesus, but it's mainly because they don't want Jesus. Verse 63 says, it's the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. And this is where I, if you're new to the church, one, you're saying, does he always preach this long? And I'm, well, when I have 49 verses, but I kind of do this when I have two verses. Uh, It's the spirit and the word that gives life. So let me tell you a little bit about us. Uh, Churches around the world are structuring their their Sunday services, structuring their children's ministry, structuring their youth ministry, doing all the kind of programs and everything. Nothing's wrong with programs or anything. Nothing's wrong with that. But they're structuring things to appeal to the flesh. He just said here, the flesh profits nothing at all. Cool, groovy, (laughs) groovy. Worship music. Lights where you can't see anybody as though it's just about you and Jesus here. It's just about, you know, it's not. It's about you being an instrument of his grace to encourage someone else. It's about that we're in this together. You're supposed to be able to see each other. We're a family. Just, you know, youth ministries and children's ministries that are just to, if we can keep entertaining them, then they'll keep coming to church. Oh, yeah? You know what's going to happen? They're going to grow up and find the world does a way better job of entertaining me than the church did. Listen, what we draw people with, we draw people to. That's an old saying. That's why we teach God's Word verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. Because it's the word and the spirit that, that profit you. I'm not interested, you know that it feels, oh, you, I got all the feels. That's the weirdest phrase. I'm, that's because I'm 63 years old. I'm sure, I'm sure it's cool to you. I'm, what's, I'm wrong. Okay, I'm wrong. Um, but oh, yeah. Oh, man. I went to that church. I got all the feels at that church. Precious ones, precious ones. We have no desire to give you all the feels. We want to give you the faith. And the faith comes by the word of God in the power of the spirit. That will save you from your sins. And that will give you power to follow him for the rest of your life. A 63-year-old man jumping up and down is dangerous. So, Stephen, come on up. Let's, let's close, my friend. Let's close. I'm going to have to go see the knee doctor <laughs> after this. Actually, to the, to the younger ones, you know what I hope? I'm not doing that because it's in my notes. Jump up and down like a goober head at the end of the sermon. That's not, that's not in my notes. I do want you to see. I'm 63 years old, and if I would have found someone better than Jesus, I would have, I would have ditched Jesus. But he just gets sweeter and sweeter to me. How I want you to know that. You'll never regret following him. Never regret it. So we're going to get ready to go to Nepal. And, you know, this is really a burn your bridges thing. It's all or nothing when we're following Jesus. No turning back, right? There's no turning back because he is what I need. I found what I need. I don't have any more fear of missing out. It's gone. I have Jesus. I have Jesus. And and so... I had the privilege of, of watching baptisms. 
And uh, it's, a, it's against the law to do that in Nepal. And they went out to the public, the river. It was a public thing. I'm kind of freaked out because I'm going, I, <laughs> there was this, this uh, uh, suspension bridge above the river. And, and not only are they doing this, but people from the, the village are coming to watch and you're wondering, who's the spy? You know, who's, is there some, what's going on here? And is this going to be okay? And they didn't even blink an eye. They had been wonderfully saved by Jesus. And they wanted the world to know about it, even if it meant being put in prison. And so they're being baptized and they're singing. Stand with me. They're singing. I, I'm not saying to do this song, but... But I'm going to sing a song with you. Um, I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back because he's the treasure. No turning back. Let's do one more. The cross before me. The cross before me. The world behind me. The cross before me. The world behind me. The cross before me. The world behind me. No turning back.